All right. We are going to pick up in the book of Joel tonight. If you aren't familiar, Joel is the second of what we call the minor prophets. So it's at the very end of your Old Testament, Hosea, Joel, and then all the rest leading up to Malachi. Joel is short enough that we'll actually cover the entirety of it tonight, um, all three of its chapters, which is a neat gift in studying the Bible because the books of the Bible are literature. And so ultimately, they're meant to be understood as a whole. But it's very rare that we can really steep in and, and sift through um, and study an entire book of the Bible um, without tapping out. Our endurance just gives out. You know, Romans compared to Joel is 16 chapters. We'd be here all day to do what we're going to do tonight uh, with the book of Joel. But anytime we get the opportunity to do so, it's great because um, the way literature works, similar to the way that film works, beginning, middle, and end all matter. And the end shapes your understanding of the middle and the beginning bleeds through the rest of the story to the end. And this is especially true in the book of Joel. Joel is a book of, like many of the prophets, multiple horizons, okay? So one of the horizons is Joel's present tense circumstances and those will be made apparent as we begin. But then he begins to look down the avenues of time and he sees a couple of other points of time uh, and there's a, um, a need both to separate and understand those separate times, but also to recognize how they're interconnected. And so it's a good thing to get to look at it tonight because what Joel does here is he connects what's happening in his day, in his time, in Israel, with this theological concept called the Day of the Lord. And in its ultimate sense, the day of the Lord concerns the last days, the final days, the, the ultimate judgment. But the way that Joel handles it here, it, it doesn't just exist at the end of time, it weaves through time. It's, it's like um, seeing the sun on a windy day when the clouds cover it and then reveal it and cover it and reveal it, but it's always there. Because of this, because of this interwoven theme, it's actually really easy to confuse yourself or even debate what Joel is talking about at any given time because he's moving between um, these times in a way that puts them side by side, that intentionally uses the same language, that takes what's happening now and says, even if the day of the Lord is this in the extreme, this exponentially, here are the similarities. And so there's um, like a really good symphony. There's a building of an original theme that grows until we get to the climax. The overture lays the format for the rest of the concert. Now notice chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. If we were to write a biography on Joel, that would be it. That's it. That's all that we know about him. We're not told any other details except for his name and his father's name. Okay. In fact, unlike many of the other books of the prophets, we don't even know his vocation. 
We know that Amos was a shepherd. We know that Ezekiel was a priest. Um, There are things that we can glean in other places, but Joel instantly jumps us into the message. Here, it's not the messenger that's important. It's the message, and the message is, as I said earlier, contemporary. He wants to address uh, something that would be making the headlines of all the papers. In fact, look at verse 2. Hear this, you elders, give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it. Let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. Now, he's doing two things here. Let's deal with the surface one first. The surface one is he's saying what's happening right here, it's unprecedented. Right? This is something that your grandparents didn't experience, and this is something your grandchildren will still talk about. Okay? It's actually somewhat comparable to the reference point that we've had in this time of COVID and quarantine to the Spanish flu. Right? There's only a handful of people alive who can look back and remember another time that was comparable to now. Okay? For the rest of us, 2020 is an unprecedented year. And we can imagine that just as our parents talked about where they were when Neil Armstrong took his first step on the moon, we can imagine telling our grandkids about the year that COVID took our lives away. That's the type of thing he's talking about. But what hasn't he done so far? He hasn't told us what it is. Remember that Joel, although he's speaking to his contemporaries, um, he is writing this to his contemporaries and beyond. As a prophet, he's speaking not only to his times, but he's called to lay out a timeless message. And so what does verse 2 and 3 do for us then as we read it? It draws us in, right? It makes us go, what in the world could be happening that's so significant that five generations will mark it as being unique? Okay, and this is what he tells us in verse 4. What the cutting locust left... The swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Locusts, grasshoppers, that's what's happened. But this is such a significant encounter with locusts that he describes it as if it was wave after wave after wave of locusts. And there was really nothing left to begin with after the first wave, but even that nothing was reduced to less than nothing, and so on and so forth, okay? It's an unrelenting assault of insects that have devoured all that they have, all that they're reliant upon for food. Remember, Israel is an agrarian society in a pre-modern world. There is no spam in the cupboards, right? The threat of locusts in these days is significant. In fact, he goes on and he describes multiple areas of life that have been directly uh, impacted by these locusts. Verse 5, Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. He starts with actually kind of a suspicious beginning. He says, let's talk to the alcoholics first. Let's talk to those who are regularly and consistently nursing themselves on wine. Let's talk to the barflies. 
And he says, you might as well start crying because the taps just ran dry. Right? The crops that lead to wine have been destroyed. Okay? And so these people who make their lives around alcohol now have nothing. And then he describes what happened, verse 6, For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Okay. Now, two things. One really simple remark here. Recognize here that the locust destruction is so significant, it hasn't just eaten this year's crops. It's destroyed the plants themselves. That means no next year crop. In fact, for most varieties of wine, you need three years of vine growth before you start producing grapes, okay? And so this isn't just about this year's crop, this is about next year's, okay? Um, the second thing I want you to notice here is that he describes these locusts in analogical ways. He makes an analogy, okay? So he says that they are like a nation, okay? In other words, he describes this attack of locusts as if it were an army. And we'll see more of that to come. It's like they were attacked by a nation who was powerful beyond number. And, and the truth is, when locusts do show up, they show up, and this is true, in the billions. Okay? And so think of any great war you can think of, any great battlefield. It's completely trumped by the amount of insect soldiers that Joel is talking about here. He says their teeth are like lion's teeth. That's not a normal thing for soldiers. Soldiers don't usually use their teeth as a weapon, but for locusts, that's a primary issue. And he says, but it's as if they were as sharp, you know, as, as the king of the animals. The second thing I want you to notice here um, is, is in three places the personal possessive pronoun. Verse 6, for a nation has come up against my land. And then again in verse 7, it laid waste to my vine and splintered my fig tree. Now, one possibility here is Joel is just recognizing that this isn't something that happened to the nation next door. And it didn't just affect some other people across the globe. It's in his backyard. It was his land, and even his vine and his fig tree were destroyed. But I think more likely, recognizing here that Joel is not writing a, uh, you know, a memoir about his own experiences, but coming, as we saw in verse 1, with the word of the Lord, I think that possessive pronoun is God's. And that is significant and appropriate. Appropriate on two levels. One, because the land of Israel that has been invaded by locusts is regularly and consistently referred to in the scriptures as my land. Israel didn't earn or deserve or conquer that land. They were given it. In fact, Deuteronomy speaks as if they were tenants. God was the owner of Israel, and Israel were merely tenants of the land. And so there's a recognition that what's happened here hasn't just happened to Israel, Israel but it's happened to, God says, my land. In fact, that's intensified by the two other words that are used here, the vine and the fig tree. Both of those are used 
throughout the Old Testament and even in the New Testament as images of Israel as a nation. Remember Jesus. When he walks out of the temple after cleansing it and he finds a fig tree that has no fruit on it and he curses the fig tree, he's symbolically recognizing that he's come into the temple, the center of the Israeli religion, and found no fruit. Right? And so the tree becomes an image, a fig tree, of Israel. In the same way, Jesus tells a parable about a vineyard. And he's not being creative or innovative there. Isaiah had done the same thing hundreds of years before Jesus. Israel was the vine, the vineyard of Israel. Israel was the fig tree. And so what's happening here, if you will, is happening to God's property, not just his land, but his people. Now that's going to get more intense in just a second. But he moves on here. He starts with the drunkards and says, your entertainment has run dry. And then verse 8, lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. Get the picture here. He says, weep like a bride who finds out in the bridal chamber the day of her wedding that her husband has died in a car accident along the way to the chapel. That's the picture here. But what he's really trying to do is just tap into the level of despair and dismay that would come with such a catastrophic event. In fact, this isn't just going to cancel one wedding. It's going to cancel all of them, right? This is a life-changing thing and even the wine that would usually flow at weddings as celebration will be lacking. And the families, because of starvation in these things, will turn to funerals instead of weddings. But he goes on, and he says in verse 9, the grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. So he turns from an audience here. He talks to the drunkards, and now he talks to the priests. And he says, priests, you should be weeping too, because you can no longer make your offerings to the Lord. If you go back and read Leviticus, there were three basic types of offerings. There were the animal offerings, there were the grain offerings, and there were the wine offerings, or sometimes they use that strange word libation offerings, right? It's, it's just a, an offering of wine. But all three of them have been directly impacted and hindered by this locus event. Now, think of how significant that is. These sacrifices are tied to the worship of God, to the forgiveness of sins, to the maintenance, uh, maintenance of the covenant, maintaining the relationship they have with God, keeping it in good favor, and now there's nothing. And so he says here, the priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. Why? Because the fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. Notice oil there is not just a kitchen good, but a significant part, again, of the priest's administrations, a normal part of how they go about their business. He moves on to a third category here, verse 11. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil, the farmers, right? Wail, O vine dressers, the vineyard workers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest field has perished, the vine dries up, right? So the third group is those who make a living in these places. And now they're in a Dust Bowl economy. There's no way for them to make a living. They're the first ones impacted. It says, continuing on here, the fig tree languishes, 
pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Now, at this point, all that Joel has done is describe this catastrophic locust attack and call people to weep because of them, which he probably didn't need to say. Right? But he calls them to lament, weep. But here he transitions. Okay. Look at verse 13. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go past the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Okay, what does he do here? He says, don't just lament, put on sackcloth and ashes. Now, sackcloth is something that you would don during a funeral. It's a outward way of dressing that reflects your pain, but it's also the garment of repentance. And here's what gets really striking, because Joel here looks at what has happened, and he doesn't just see it as a disaster, he sees it as a consequence. He sees it as a judgment. And so he doesn't look around at all of the pain and all of the difficulty and say, cry out to God because we need his help. He says, you got what you deserved. You need to cry out to God in confession of sin. You need to repent. Now, I think we have a tendency to envision plenty of circumstances where we could put ourselves in the same place. And at the most individual level, this is like the person who says, I told you so, right? But in a bigger way, at the national level, it just seems so callous. And the truth is, even within the church, there has been not a limit to people who have looked at particular catastrophic events, whether they're war or hurricane, and identified them as the judgment of God. And we as a culture often reel against that, resist that. But that's clearly what Joel is doing here. Okay. And so I want to really quickly, as, as we notice this transition, and he's going to kick it up a notch, there's going to be more intensity here, but right here I want to take the moment to just avoid two paths that I would suggest that, uh, that we are prone to two ditches, if you will, in opposite directions. One is to deny the fact that God is sovereign. Okay. This is not something that happened to God or his land or his fig tree or his vine that he was against. This is not something that happened while God was occupied with other things. This is not something that happened because God was not powerful enough to stop it. This is not just some circumstance or accident of an uncontrolled world. As we'll see in Joel, that is not an option. But on the other hand, what Joel does here in saying this is because of your sins also requires something that we don't always have. Okay. Why is Joel convinced that this thing he's just witnessed is a direct and very explicit judgment of God. It's because this is one of the things that Deuteronomy said would happen to an unrepentant Israel. Okay. 
I know we kind of think, and mostly this is because of Joel and a few other places, we think of a plague of locusts as being an apocalyptic event, right? In the Middle East, locusts are a thing. They happen, okay? The level that this is talking about is unique, okay? The one time we have recorded in history in this general range when locusts attacked, the worst thing that's recorded is that it doubled the price of wine. That's not this. This is, again, catastrophic. But listen to what it says here, going back to Deuteronomy 28. So this is the days of Moses. Before Israel's entered into the land, Moses is about to die. He's not going with them, and he's calling them to continue to faithfully obey the covenant. And here in chapter 28, he says, here are the blessings that will come if you keep the covenant. And then he says, here are the curses that will come if you do not. And I just want to draw your attention here to verse 38 of chapter 28. Um, And this is in a long list, and the list is not a laundry list. It's a progressive list. It's these things, and then there's an escalation, and these things. But notice here in 38, you shall carry much seed into the field, and shall gather in little, for the locusts shall consume it. Okay? In other words... Joel, like all of the prophets, is aware of the covenant curses. And he knows that the increasing of those realities is like the warning bells of consequence. He knows that if this has happened, not only is it not accidental, but it was foretold as being a consequence of Israel forsaking their God. And so he calls not for a work party, not for, you know, uh, an emergency order to go into place, not for some sort of a benevolence team to be put together to go and reach out to other nations. He calls for a fast. He calls for the priest to lead in mourning. Verse 14, consecrate a fast call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Verse 15, alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Notice two things there. First, he evokes this idea for the first time of the day of the Lord. And it's important that we understand that this is not a phrase that Joel coins. He's drawing from a concept um, that we find in Isaiah, that we find in Amos, um, that we find in Zephaniah, that we find in many places. Israel talked a lot about the day of the Lord. But now he's bringing it up here. He connects what they're experiencing now with the big capital D day, the day of the Lord. And not only that, but he says the day of the Lord is near. As I suggested earlier, the way the covenant curses were to work was an escalation of warnings and alarms so that Israel would turn around before the final threshold of judgment, which was exile, where they would be spit out from the land removed from it, 
taken from being an independent nation and becoming a slave to foreign nations. Okay? And if you read First and Second Kings or First and Second Chronicles, you'll watch as Israel faces the things in the book of Deuteronomy and stubbornly and consistently continues to avoid repentance, continues to worship other gods, continues to forsake justice and mistreat each other. And so basically, he's saying, if we are at the locust day, then the end is near. Okay. Second, I want you to notice is that it's the day of the Lord, and therefore its destruction is from the Almighty. Okay. In other words, and we'll see this in just a second, but it's not just my land and my figs and my vine, it's my locusts. The commander of the locust army is the God Almighty. Verse 16, is not food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods. The storehouses are desolate. The granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. How the beasts groan. The herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. It's worth noting here that the place where he ends this first section focuses on, if you will, the world. Not the occupants, not the people, but the plants and animals and fields and trees. And since the beginning, when God commissions mankind, men and women alike, to have dominion over the earth, their decisions and the earth they inhabit are tied together. And we've gotten pretty good at recognizing this now, that how we behave impacts the environment. Right? But that's where he ends here. And I would suggest to you, the reason is because this is an echo of the beginning issue. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve's rebellion doesn't just lead to them being separated from God, but the curse thorns and thistles and all of the chaos on the planet it begins right there and so here it's as if he's saying it's happening again and we'll see that again as well verse 19 to you O lord i call for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness and flame has burned all the trees of the field even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water brooks are dried up and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Okay, and so earlier he calls all of the people to consecrate a fast, and here he joins their cry. I think that's really significant too. Joel is not some self-righteous, judgmental individual who sits on the sideline and says, this is your own doing, you deserve it, and applauds it. He weeps. We see the same character in Jesus. On the day that Jesus rides into Jerusalem, knowing that within just a couple of days that city will reject him and put him to death, even though he is their Messiah, the one they've been waiting for. As he rides into Jerusalem, he begins to weep. And he cries and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you under my wing like a hen does its chicks, but you were not willing. 
and because you did not know the day of your visitation, desolation is coming. He knows that Israel's choices will lead to judgment, and he doesn't smile. He's not eager. He's heartbroken. So is Joel. He's calling here for a fasting and a consecration and a lament and a calling out to God, and he joins the chorus. He's part of it. There's a solidarity here. Chapter 2, verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. Okay. And the first party faux pas that Joel uh, uh, commits is labeling this disaster as being deserved judgment. The second one is he basically says, you haven't seen anything yet, right? Here in chapter 2, he stops talking about the present, and he says, sound the alarm. Okay. Now, we're probably all familiar with the story with the boy who cried wolf, right? The idea is that this boy, because he just wants a laugh, runs into the village and says, there's a wolf, there's a wolf, and all the people grab their weapons and run out, and there's no wolf, and he says, just kidding. And he does it again. And then eventually he does it so often that they don't believe him. And when there is a wolf, they don't believe him and he gets eaten. Okay? But how much worse would that story be if it happened to a village where wolves had already ravaged the town? And then he runs in and says, wolf, wolf, right? Everybody's on edge. Every time you mention a wolf, it's like mentioning you know, rope in the name of a man who hanged himself. It's painful. When Joel brings up coming judgment here, He's heaping it on. You would think he'd say, repent, God will forgive us. But he says, we need to talk about what's coming. And he starts off with, blow a trumpet, sound the alarm. We're being attacked. Okay. He says, the day of the Lord is coming, a day is near, verse 2, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Okay. Two things here. One, that idea of the day of the Lord being a day of darkness will be repeated. Okay, so we'll come back to that. But second, I want you to notice how this is described in verse 2. A day of darkness, a gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Do you get the image there? Jerusalem is on a hill but it's surrounded by hills, okay? So if you're standing in Jerusalem, you have a relatively good visibility of the valley and then the hills that are next, like Mount Olivet, um, where uh, the Mount of Olives, where Jesus prays in the Gospels. And so the vision here, if you can get it, is that he's calling an alarm, and as people look out, they see these hillsides covered in people. So much it darks out, it blots out the land. They don't see the hills, they see, you know, like, um, like sprinkles on a, on a cookie, right? All they see is people. But also, does that seem familiar? What else would blot out the hillside? In fact, in fact um, what else could be like blackness spread across the mountains or even, as we'll see, something that would blot out the sun? Locusts. In fact, 
The correlation between what we read here and locusts is so strong, many commentators think he's still talking about the locusts. Other commentators think there were never any locusts and he was always talking about human armies. But what I would suggest to you really happens here is Joel takes the past and very recent locust outbreak and looks forward to a coming and very real army attack. And he describes the first, as we saw, locusts who are like an army, and now he's going to describe an army who are like the locusts. Okay? He's intentionally tying the two together, but they are not the same. Okay? So notice, he says here, they are a great and powerful people. There has never been before nor will again be after them through all the years of all generations. Sound familiar? It sounds like verse 2, right? This attack is going to be unprecedented, just like the locusts were. Look at verse 3. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. You see here how it sounds locust-like, right? They come in. It's a beautiful and abundant land. When they leave, there's nothing left. Look at this, verse 4. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on top of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Okay, again, we could totally envision this as being locusts. We're just moving across the valley together, making this massive noise from the sound of their wings. Verse 6, before them, people are in anguish. All faces grow pale, like warriors they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march each one his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb into the houses. They enter through the windows like a, like a thief. Again, it seems like locusts. You know, you can even picture in, in verse 8 and verse 9, you can picture it as almost as if they tried to fight a locust invasion as they would an incoming army and how unfruitful that would be, right? They're out there with their bows and arrows and the locusts are just coming right through the front lines. You know, they're swinging their swords through and, and nothing is happening. Even the fact that it says here that they come through the windows, you know, like thieves. We can imagine, remember, windows in those days wouldn't always have coverings, you know, and as we find every summer, not being a screen door people in Seattle, bugs get in, right? But at the same time, when we read this, it's clearly more than that. It's clearly more than just locusts here. It is an army, in fact, if you're familiar with the teachings of the other prophets and you know where the story of Joel is going, this is exactly what happens. Although it's possible that in the days of Joel there is some semblance of confession, public mourning, and repentance, it's not enough to turn the ship around and Israel continues and progresses through the curses until Assyria for the northern tribes and Babylon for the southern tribes does come in completely devastates Jerusalem, levels it, and leads all of the captives off to live in Babylon. Okay. That's clearly what he's talking about here, and so he sees this, and again, he uses the language of the day of the Lord, right? a day of judgment and consequence. Verse 10, the earthquakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. 
the Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. And so again, he strikes them and he says, this is not something that's going to happen to God's people that you can cry on God to protect you from because God is the commanding officer of this enemy army. It says at the end here, he who executes his word is powerful for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet, verse 12, even now declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful. Do you see how the cycle is completed again? In the first chapter, we get destruction that has happened. It's connected to being from God. Therefore, call out to the God that has disciplined you. Receive forgiveness and restoration. Here it's greater and worse judgment is coming. But even now, you can turn around and repent. The message is the same. One piece of evidence was the past. The second piece of evidence is where we're headed. But I love, I love verse 12. Yet even now. The picture we get here of God is not, I can't believe you let it get all the way to locusts. Let's just accelerate things. I'm done with you. It's like the alarm bells are going off and he's still just waiting for his children to cry out. He's right there. The judgment that God is bringing on Israel is not something that, again, he is ambitious to accomplish. He is ready and willing to save these people from these things if only they would repent. Why? Because of his character, which is what we get in verse 13. But one more thing in verse 12. He says, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. In Israel, a way that you publicly expressed grief or sometimes shock or these types of things was to tear your clothes. But he says, but this has got to be real. It can't just be external. You can't just go through the motions. You need to tear more than your clothes. You need to tear your hearts. Okay. Now, the fact that it needs to be internal doesn't mean that it's private. And it doesn't mean that it shouldn't be marked with external things. And it also doesn't mean that it's merely up to the individual. What he calls here, as we'll see in a minute, is clearly corporate. Call a solemn fast, a convocation. We'll see more of that in just a minute. But it does have to be authentic. It does have to be real. But why can they do that in hope? If God just devastated them with locusts and has now announced he's going to devastate them with armies, why cry out? Why does he say there in verse 13? He says, Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Now he's quoting there. How did he know the locusts were from the Lord? Deuteronomy. How does he know that this is who God is? Exodus. There's an occasion in the book of Exodus where Moses says, God, I want to see you. Like, really see you. And God says, nobody can see me and live. 
but I will show you my glory. And what's interesting is God sets this up. He puts Moses in the cleft of a rock. He's going to pass by. And then what's recorded for us is not the doing of that, but these words. God speaks and he reveals himself to Moses as he passes by. And this is the character. This is who I am, he says. He says, I am gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Although the people have been flippant and haven't kept the covenant, God is a covenant keeper. And he's ready to do his part. He's not arbitrary. Again, listen to these words and think about what they mean. He's gracious. He's merciful. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. And then Joel adds his own spin here at the end. And he relents over disaster. That's an application. Because God is this character, he relents in disaster. Now, a side note, because I just am not patient like God is, and so I can't wait. You remember the end of the book of Jonah? Where Jonah is told to go to Nineveh, 40 days, and yet the judgment, and then he goes out, and unlike Joel, he's not a weeping prophet. He's an angry prophet. And so he sits and he waits for judgment to fall on Nineveh. And it doesn't. And he gets super upset and he argues with God and he says, I knew this. It's why I didn't want to even come and warn Nineveh. Because if I warn Nineveh, maybe they'd repent. And if they repent, you wouldn't bring disaster on them. And he says, I knew this because you are, and just like Joel, he quotes from Exodus. The same passage. But he quotes it including Joel's language at the end here. He quotes it, including Joel's language that God is the type to relent. Okay. Now, one of the reasons that's really interesting is because it shows us that Jonah was familiar with the writings of Joel 1, and 2, because of that, he was familiar with what Nineveh means. Nineveh means impending judgment on Israel. As we just read about these armies, he knows if Nineveh is destroyed, Assyria is destroyed. And if Assyria is destroyed... There's no enemy from the north. And so he's reluctant here because he knows where Israel is headed. Anyways, another part here. God's character is consistent, but he is still sovereign. And so notice verse 14. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him? Why does he put it like that? One reason might be because he's trying to encourage these people. It's not too late. Maybe if you turn around right now, who knows what God will do in the other direction and the blessings he'll bring. But I think more significantly here, he's recognizing the fact that this is not like a vending machine. It's not as simple as just go through the motions of repentance and God will, you know, turn off the machine. God is sovereign. He makes his own decisions We don't change God. His character is consistent. But ultimately, repentance doesn't indebt God to forgiveness. Alexander Pope famously says, to err is human. Right? Maybe you've heard that before. Do you know the rest of the quote? To forgive is divine. What was he saying? He was saying, there's a natural transaction here. It's my job as a human being to mess up 
and it's your job as God to forgive me. There's no room for that in Joel. There's no place for entitlement here. He says, who knows whether or not he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Verse 15, blow the trumpet in Zion. Again with the echoes. Look back at chapter 2, verse 1. Blow the trumpet in Zion. But notice the difference here. The first one was, blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm, an army at the gates of Jerusalem, right? But look at verse 15. Blow the trumpet in Zion, Zion, consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even the nursing infants. What what is he saying here? He's saying universal. From the oldest to the youngest. Even those that aren't old enough to understand, gather them in the temple as a nation cry out to God. Which, by the way, is what Nineveh does in the book of Jonah. In fact, when Nineveh's king sets up a fast, he doesn't just say, all of us need to fast. He says, don't even feed your animals. That's how universal he is in his national repentance. Okay? It's a similar idea here. The second thing he says here is that there's no exceptions. There's no possibility for this to be poor timing. Look at what he says. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Okay? He says, cancel the wedding. Stop right where you are before the wedding. Do this first. And the truth is, repentance is only repentance when it's priority. If it's, all right, well, I'm going to go to the bank, and then I'm going to pick up some flowers, and then I'll repent. Then you don't understand the seriousness and the significance of sin. Repentance takes priority. And that's what he's saying here. And if I can push it a little bit further, it's worth remembering that weddings in those days were consummated not on a honeymoon on some tropical island far away from the wedding, but at the wedding itself. Okay, and so the idea here is basically, look, I know that the dinner, you know, the hors d'oeuvres have already, already gone out and now's the part where you're about to consummate the wedding. Stop right where you are. You know, like a fire alarm. Leave the tables. Stop what you're doing. Verse 17. Between the vestibule and the altar... Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? Now notice two things here. First, the picture. The picture here is that the temple, which has this public area where all the people are allowed, is filled with the crowds, and at the front of them, in front of the altar, are the priests, And they are leading the liturgy, if you will, of repentance. And so this is a a big, crowded national response. And then second, notice the words they use. Spare us, not because it shouldn't have been that big of a deal, not because we were innocent or ignorant or because we had all of these reasons, but he says, spare us for your sake. What's most concerning here to the priests is God's reputation. And recognize that this is a big issue that the prophets deal with. Here's how it worked in the ancient world. Your gods were directly tied to your military success. If you were defeated by another another nation, you were defeated by the gods of the other nation, and your god was defeated by the gods of the other nation. This was standard understanding. 
So how did Babylon feel about the conquering of Israel? It was evidence that their gods were more powerful than Yahweh. And God went into that fully knowing that that would be the case. In fact, part of God's whole plan of vindicating them and bringing judgment on Babylon was to close that potentiality so that everybody would know that there is only one Lord. If you want to read more on this, read Isaiah 41, 42, 43, 44. God says, I'm going to tell you what I'm doing in advance so everybody knows this is my doing and not something that was done to me. Okay? And so basically they say here, for your reputation, Lord, spare us. But again, this is not arm-twisting language. This is a recalibration. It deals with the root of where sin comes from. Sin chooses something else over God's glory, over God's authority, over God getting what he deserves. Sin takes something else in our lives and says, instead of you getting the glory and honor, I'm going to put this first in my life. And so again, there's a direct line between this language and a true heart of repentance that only wants God to be glorified. Verse 18, then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, behold, I'm sending to you grain, wine, oil, and you will be satisfied and you will no more, I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you. Again, here's another sign that we weren't talking about locusts, but an army. The one from the north, that's prophetic language that starts with Isaiah. And so he's saying, this whole army I was telling you about, it's the northerners that Isaiah talks about. But now God's saying, I'm going to take them out and drive them into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and the foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Okay, now this is pretty easy to miss because for us, great is a positive word all the time. But do you remember Oz the Great and Powerful? Right, the idea isn't that everybody loves Oz, it's that he's, he's big, right? In fact, he's great and awesome, another word that we've turned into a positive but actually carries a lot of horror and negativity. When it says here that he judges the northerners because they have done great things, it means big things, world-altering things. But they're not alone in that. Again, verse 21, Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. It's not just the Babylonians who are capable of big things. God is bigger and therefore capable of more. Fear not, verse 22, you beasts of the field, you pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine give their full yield. What is this? This is restoration, right? And again, it's in the language of the locusts. Everything that has been destroyed by the locust, it's envisioned here as if it's all brought back. It's blessing instead of curse. Verse 23, Be glad, O children of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vat shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter. 
my great army when I, which I sent among you. Now this is a really beautiful thing. This is something that God doesn't have to do. Okay. If your bully of an older brother is twisting your arm behind your back and it hurts until you finally call uncle, uncle is a code word that means, okay, now I'll stop, right? Now you've tapped out. Repentance, as we see here, isn't just a tap out. God doesn't just relent and go back to his cave. He says here, don't you know when you repent, I'll restore the years the locusts have eaten? I'll reverse the judgment itself? I'll erase it? Remove its scars? It's a very powerful statement. It's one that I think should encourage you if you can reflect on a time of your life where you were wayward for a significant period of time. Galatians says that we should not we should not forget that God is not mocked and what we sow we will also reap. Some of us know that already because we've reaped a lot in our life. We look back over our past and we see the things that are dead and damaged and we do come back to the Lord. And we come back to the Lord so that we don't increase the dead. We come back to the Lord so that we can move in a different direction. But I will restore the years have loc- the locusts have eaten speaks of the ability of restoration, of resurrection of the things that are dead, of removing the things and bringing back to life. It is an amazing and gracious thing that God is offering to do for Israel. And again, It's not some sort of bonus offer. It is his character. He is the God who gives life. He is the God who loves. He is the God who blesses. It is his nature. And so another incentive here for Israel's repentance is that despair doesn't need to be. That even now there is time for hope because God is the one who restores the years the locusts who have eaten. eaten. Verse 26 You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously wondrously with you and my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else and my people shall never again be put to shame. So the first thing he says here is I'm going to set everything right. To use the words of the psalmist, I'm going to set the bone that I have broken, right, and begin the process of healing. In fact, he uses as a primary metaphor here for rain, okay, abundant rain that produces an abundant crop, and he says, I'm going to pour it out upon the land. But suddenly here in verse 28, he talks, to, talks about another kind of pouring out. He intensifies and builds on this. Look at verse 28, and it shall come to pass afterward. After what? after I've removed the judgment, after I've restored the years, after I've produced abundance in the land, after that, God's not done yet. He has more. After that, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. He says here, I'm going to do a new thing. I'm going to do a greater thing. 
I'm not just going to restore the old things. I'm going to do something I've never done before. And the way it's described here is in terms of the pouring out of his spirit on all flesh. Now, if you read through the Old Testament, you will see the spirit of God come upon people and bring dreams and visions and prophecies. But what you find is that it happens rarely to particular individuals, to people like Samson or Saul or David, the kings, or sometimes an occasional priest or these types of things. But he says, what I'm going to do in that day is indiscriminately pour out my spirit. Look at the way he describes it. He says, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on my male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Regardless of gender, regardless of class, regardless of social standing, maturity, or age, the spirit is going to be poured out fully and completely. Now, this desire is one that even Israel understood. One of the places where God pours out his spirit in the book, uh, in the Old Testament, is in the book of Numbers. In chapter 11, Moses is worn out and tired. He's the sole leader, counselor, judge of two million people. And so his father-in-law gives him some advice, and he says, why don't you appoint assistants? second in command who can handle all these cases and can defer to you when it's, you know, above them. And so he selects 70 elders of Israel and God graciously pours out their spirit and all 70 of them, even the ones who aren't at the meeting, it's a funny story, even the ones who stayed home because they had a cold or something, they begin to prophesy. Just like one of the prophets, they begin to prophesy. They're overcome with the spirit of the Lord. And Joshua is offended by this. Because there's only one prophet. That's Moses. Right? And so he runs up to Moses and he says, Moses, they're all prophesying. And he says, are you kidding me? He says, I wish that all of Israel would prophesy. There's not a, a, a prideful or a selfish or self-centered bone in Moses' body. He says, what I've experienced with God, I wish that was normative. And Joel now says, that's what God's going to do. He's not just going to restore you in the land. He's not just going to pour out the rain. He's going to pour out his spirit. Now, that brings us to the book of Acts. Because one of the things that this entails, one of the things that's entailed in the restoration of Israel is the coming of the promised Messiah, Jesus. And so Jesus comes in the Gospels. He does miracles. He preaches good news to the poor. He lives a perfect life of obedience to God. He's crucified by his own people, and God raises him from the dead. And then at the end of the Gospels, he ascends into heaven. That's what brings us to the book of Acts. But Jesus says, I want you to wait. Peter, James, John, my 12 apostles, I want you to wait in Jerusalem until you receive the promise of my Father. The helper, he calls him in the Gospel of John. And then, he says, you'll be my witnesses to do Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Now, one last thing, because it's significant for Joel. Joel is about the destruction of the harvest, right, in the locust. In fact, some commentators believe that when he says, call a solemn assembly, he's directly evoking the language of Pentecost. 
which is also referred to as a solemn assembly, but it's one that's a celebration of a harvest. Okay? And so in Joel, he's basically saying, it's not a harvest party we need to have, it's a repentance party. But here in Acts chapter 2, Jesus' disciples, as they were told, are waiting in Jerusalem, and they wait until the day of Pentecost, this harvest festival. And this is what happens. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now what happens is they run out into the streets and they begin to praise God in all of these languages they don't know. And Pentecost is a pilgrim festival. So there are Jews from all over the world and they see these men praising God in their own language and it draws a crowd and Peter stands up and he explains what is happening in these words. Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose since it's only the third hour of the day, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, and even on my male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And he goes on and he says, we've received the spirit because the Messiah has come. And the promise of the Spirit, this pouring out, this available touch point with the living God and the empowerment to be his witness, he says that's not just for us, but for all of you and all who will ever, wherever they are, receive Jesus. Okay. He says this is that that Joel talked about. And again, we need to recognize the significance of that. Joel describes it in terms of miraculous doings, prophecies and visions and dreams. Ezekiel describes it in terms of faithful living. He says, God will put his spirit within you and then you will be God's people and he will be your God and then you will keep the new covenant and then you will be empowered for obedience and faithfulness. The Spirit is not just an ability to do weird things. It's a restored relationship with the living God. And it's given indiscriminately in Jesus Christ to young and old, to poor and wealthy, to all who call upon the name of the Lord. And, and Peter rightly recognizes that that time is now. It has come. But that's not where Joel stops. Look at verse 30. So I'll pour out my spirit and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So the beginning of this age is the coming of the spirit. The end of the age is this big apocalyptic world event. But for that whole period, those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you really want to be impacted, go back, read Acts chapter 2, and watch how Peter interprets that last sentence. 
Those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And he says, therefore, I tell you that anyone who calls upon the name of Jesus shall be saved. This word is Yahweh. Peter recognizes Jesus as Yahweh. But he still here comes back to the day of the Lord and he sees it off in the distance, past this blessing that God gives of the Spirit. And he finishes by saying, For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Okay. As we jump into chapter 3, which we're just going to skim over tonight, I want you to notice one little introduced piece here. The day of the Lord is judgment. Joel says it's judgment like you just experienced, but exponential. And here, he says the day of the Lord is coming and it is judgment. But what does he say? He says the day of the Lord won't be judgment on everyone. For some, it will actually be an escape, or the word he literally means here is deliverance. So the day of the Lord is a day of judgment, but it's also a day of salvation. And that's kind of the epiphany of the book of Joel. That's the new information. And what he goes on to describe is clearly the day of the Lord. It's a day of judgment, but it's also a day of deliverance. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. For behold, in those days, and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, although I think the valley of Jehoshaphat is a real place, the language here is not the name of a place that we know. Okay. Jehoshaphat is a name that means God is judge. Okay. So in other words, this is the valley where God is judge. And I think that's the point that Joel is trying to make. He's not trying to get us to pull out a map, although you can look in other prophets and see that this is clearly the Jezreel Valley. His point here is, I'm going to name it for what's going to happen there. If you will, he says, I'm going to give you the name that we'll call it after this. Okay. The Valley of Judgment. He says, and I'll enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you're paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. For you've taken my silver and my gold and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I'll stir them up from the place which you have sold them and I'll return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hands of the people of Judah and they'll sell them to the Sabians, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. Now I would suggest to you that in the same way the locusts and the coming army of Babylon are tied together. In the same way, the judgment on Babylon and the judgment on the whore of Babylon, to use the words of John in Revelation, this future war, are being paralleled intentionally. In other words, all of these crimes here and God bringing judgment on them, we see that happen writ small in what God does with Babylon before he brings Israel back to the land. But here... Joel is saying, just like God's going to do that, someday he's going to do it in spades. Okay? 
And it's not just a handful of nations. It's not Babylon or Assyria. It's referred to here as all the nations, a worldwide event. In fact, look at verse 9. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Do you hear the echo again? Earlier it was consecrate for a fast. And he says, now for all the nations that are your enemies, call them to consecrate themselves for war. Prepare for battle. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Now, if you're familiar with the preaching of Dr. Martin Luther King, or if you've read the prophets, you're probably familiar with a verse that sounds a whole lot like that one. There's another prophet who speaks of an occasion where because God's going to bring peace, people will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Okay? And men shall study war no more. I think it's from Isaiah 26. It was one of Martin Luther King's favorite passages. And so the idea there is weapons will no longer be needed, so we'll use them as implements of farming. But Joel here, it's the opposite. He's like, if you don't have a sword, go out to your tool shed and make one. Okay? It's a summoning of all. And he says, let the weak say, I am a warrior. That's not some sort of encouraging mantra. It's congratulations, you've been enlisted. Right? You have an appointment in the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Verse 11, hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord, that the nations stir themselves up and come to the Valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Now, this brings us to a tension that we as moderns always need to keep in mind, which is that when God talks about final judgment, even if that makes us uncomfortable, it is also justice. And the judgment is coming because of the oppressed. How did these people treat Israel? They sold little girls for an extra drink at the bar. That's what he says earlier in this passage. God bringing about this judgment on the nations is also salvation. It's the end of injustice. It's the end of sex trafficking. It's the final end of violent wars that take advantage of weaker people and poorer nations. Now, this whole time we've been talking about harvest metaphors, right? So the harvest is destroyed by the locusts. God will increase your harvest. And it shows up here again, but notice it at this time, verse 13. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. What is the harvest here? death. And what do the vats overflow with? Blood. John picks up in this imagery in Revelation chapter 18, where Jesus shows up and he says, I have trod the winepress alone. Okay, it's judgment. Verse 14, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon are darkened, and the stars withdrawn their shining. Okay, so there was the darkness of locusts, there's the darkness of, of the armies, and now it's the darkness of the day of the Lord, the real one, not the, you know, test run. Verse 16, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake, but the Lord is a refuge to his people. Judgment and salvation. A stronghold, it says, to the people of Israel. 
verse 17, so you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. And Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers never again shall pass through it. Which again is a way of saying no more threat. An end of the danger of violence and oppression. Verse 18, and in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk. And all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. <coughs> Excuse me, which is relatively far away from Jerusalem. But what's the picture here? The picture isn't just Israel restored, it's paradise restored, right? It's, it's not just Israel restored, it's Eden returning, okay? It's the setting right not just of the things that God did in judgment, but setting right of the things that were cursed in Adam. It's the big one. And that's one of the messages here of the book of Joel, is there's a day after the day of the Lord. Okay. Verse 19, Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness. Those are two classic enemies of Israel that are singled out here as an example. For the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. He finishes here by saying, eventually I will bring justice. He says, in that day I will avenge the innocent blood that I have not yet avenged. And we see this in the book of Revelation as well. There's an occasion where there are martyrs, people who have died for being Christians, and they're under the throne, and they cry out to God, and they say, when, when, Lord, will you bring justice for our deaths? And they hear a voice from the throne saying, not yet. But again, this is God's character. The Lord is long-suffering and patient. And that's not just something he is for Israel because he likes them. That's something he is for all of humanity because he loves them. But if patience doesn't come to an end, it's not patience, it's indifference. It says, I don't really actually care about the violence or the oppression. I don't really actually care for or will set things right for the innocent's sake. But listen to the message of Joel here and hear it for what it is. Great and awesome in the big sense that's negative and big and dangerous and dark, but also justice, deliverance, and salvation I will avenge their blood. Blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. Let's pray. Father, like the people in the book of Joel, we find ourselves between two days. Not the day of locusts and the day of Babylon, but the day of the pouring out of your spirit and the day where the moon will turn to blood and the sky to darkness. We find ourselves in a period, Lord, where you are both actively inviting people into relationship with you, making your spirit available to all who call upon the name of the Lord, saving all who call upon the name of the Lord. But we also know that this day will not last forever, that your patience is long, that your long-suffering is great, and that you are the God who calls to the enemies and says, even now, even now, if you would repent. God, we just thank you for the gift of salvation.
We thank you for giving us your spirit. We thank you for your patience, for your mercy, for your forgiveness. I pray that we would carry that message ourselves, but we would also recognize that the God who judges is the God who is just. And you were merciful and did not bring what we deserve. And you do not desire to bring what anyone deserves upon their own shoulders. But you will stand up for the weak. And you will be a father to the fatherless. And you will bring justice where there's been injustice. And you will avenge the innocent blood that has not been avenged. And in that day, all of us will say, truly the Lord is God. Truly the Lord is just. Truly the Lord is good. May we desire the day of the Lord for the right reasons. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.